Our scripture passage this morning is Matthew 5, 21 to 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar And remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the finished work of your son. Where we find forgiveness, where we find life, where we find joy, where we find identity, where we find purpose. Love so amazing, so divine, demands our souls, our lives, our all. And as we hear the words of your Son, this morning, would you give us grace? His demands are stringent upon our life. Again, as we heard in the testimony of your servant, will not in order to gain your love, but as a response to it. We have challenging calls in the Sermon on the Mount, and may we always be motivated by grace, realizing we are working not for a position of acceptance, but from a position of acceptance by faith in your son, Christ crucified on the behalf of guilty sinners like us. God, we do pray for the Pillar Network. We're thankful for a network of Southern Baptist churches that take your word seriously and that we can feel really good about our stewardship of your money, that we can support churches that want to be grounded in the word. And we pray that the network would continue to grow, would continue to build, even as they have a meeting here in Texas Uh, Tomorrow, would you give uh, favor? We want to see healthy churches all across our country. So we pray that you would use Pillar Network in a big way. And we want to pray specifically for Sun City Church here in true West Texas. And uh, they don't even know yet that they're going to receive the blessing from Southside Baptist Church. And I pray that it would be a huge encouragement as we give beyond our normal normal giving to bless another church. Uh, Planting in the midst of COVID is no small thing. And so we pray that our our love would be an encouragement to them and you would strengthen them. And even this morning, Christ would be exalted, saints would be edified. Thankful for more new life. Thankful for the birth of Henry Gomez. Pray that he would continue to strengthen and do well. Thank you for a healthy, healthy mama. And we pray for their family as they adjust now to new life, that you give them favor and strength and perseverance and, and skill as they shepherd little hearts. And we're so, so grateful that you're a God who not only creates us, not only redeems us, but speaks to us. You haven't left us on our own. You haven't left us in the dark. And so now as we open up your word, I pray that you'd give us help. Thankful for the promise that you will. And so help us to have receptive hearts. Pray that we would leave here changed as a result of your powerful word. May it and no other thing be a lamp unto our feed and a light into our path. The grass will wither and the flower 
will fade, but your word will stand forever. I pray this through the mediation of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, friends, today uh, in our culture, unlike previous cultures, we live in what we could call a victim mindset, a victim culture in a big way. Even with this recent Denver shooting, at least one major news outlet had this headline that the, that the guy was worried about being targeted for his Muslim faith. So now the shooter is a victim. I can only imagine how that would have went down if he would have said for his Christian faith, but everyone's a victim today. Personal responsibility has gone out the door. And today, especially, we're told that we're not responsible for our emotions. We're victims of our emotions, but biblically, that just won't work. Biblically, God commands our emotions regularly. Because emotions are important. Emotions are tip-offs. Emotions express values and express evaluations. And they tell us what we really believe. And today in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to focus on one particular emotion, the emotion of anger. And he will not accept anyone saying, well, that's just how I am. Just a victim. I'm just an angry person. I'm, you know, I'm just like the Incredible Hulk. I get triggered and there's no turning back. Not so among the people of Jesus. So if you've got a Bible, we're in Matthew. Look at Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible underneath the chair in front of you. It's page 760 as we continue to journey through Matthew chapter 5. Let's consider two points together this morning. The danger of anger and the priority of peace. So first, the danger of anger, the Holy Spirit through Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. Our Lord says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus, here he quotes the Old Testament, he quotes the law. He says, you know the sixth commandment, do not murder. Pretty straightforward, honestly, pretty easy to keep. I bet the vast majority of you have never been tempted even the slightest to break this commandment, to take another human life. But Jesus says, I've come, as we saw last time, I've come to fulfill the law, Matthew 5, 17. I've come to fill it to the full I've come to bring about that which it pointed forward to I've come to teach what it was trying to get at in this case I've come to deepen the commandment and internalize the commandment and even amplify this sixth commandment you've heard it said do not murder but I say to you Jesus says anyone who's angry with a brother will be subject to judgment And brother, of course, it's an inclusive term. It means men and women, male and females. The term's actually siblings. It's a family term. Brothers and sisters is what some translations of the word is brother, but we're we're growing up, so we know that includes women as well. So it's the family of faith, siblings. But, But children, look up at me real quick. It also includes your brothers and sisters. Children, you know that one of the main ways you can obey your parents and honor the Lord is by honoring your siblings? 
Do you ever fight? Children, do you ever fight with your, do you, is, there, is there sibling rivalry in any other home besides the White House in this room? <laughs> do you ever get angry with your brothers and sisters? Well, I want you to pay really close attention to this sermon because Jesus cares about the peace of your home. Jesus has a word for us all this morning. You've heard, do not murder, but I say, don't even be angry. Again, Jesus goes for the heart, doesn't he? It's fairly easy not to murder, but have you ever been angry? Have you ever insulted anyone? Remember what he's calling us to. Look back at chapter 5, verse 20, which is in some ways the thesis statement of the whole sermon. He tells his people, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We've got to have a greater righteousness, which we saw as a heart righteousness. So he calls out anger, and anger is a negative emotional response to perceived injustice. Sinful anger, which is what we're talking about this morning, it happens when I don't get what I want, and most of us struggle with it in some ways. So don't, you know, don't turn off, you know, I don't, that's not me, I'm so glad so-and-so is listening to the sermon, no, this is for you this morning. We tend to sanitize it, don't we? Well, you know, I'm not angry, I just get frustrated sometimes. I'm just, I'm just irritable at times. I just get annoyed on occasion. But friends, those things are anger, just in adolescent form. It's just not full bloom yet. And Jesus says anger is no small thing. We're salt and light. We're different. We're distinct. We take anger really seriously. John agrees with his Lord. He says in 1 John 3, 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We're trying to cut it out. There's not room for anger and hatred among the people of God. And Jesus here says, if anyone insults a brother or sister or calls him a fool, they'll be liable to judgments. The word here for insult is literally raka. means empty-headed. It was an Aramaic cuss word. The word fool has overtones both of immorality and stupidity. It's the word moros. You can kind of hear where we get our word moron. What Jesus is saying here is the way we use our words is extremely important. Disciples of Jesus are careful with our words. We weigh our words. We think before we speak. And Jesus commands us not to tear down another with our words. James would agree. James chapter 3, he likens the power of the tongue, the power of our words to the fact that a large horse is controlled by a small bit or a massive ship is guided by a small rudder. He says the tongue is a small member, but it boasts great things. The smallest fire can set a forest ablaze. James chapter three, verse nine. Speaking of the tongue with it, we bless our Lord and father and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water? And so Jesus is saying our discipleship, our following of him, we follow him with our lives, but we also follow him with our mouths. 
and follow him with our hearts. And he's going to teach us in chapter 6 that those two are connected because it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks. That's why anger is tied to destructive language. The old adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's flat out false. And most of you know it. Most of you have experienced it. We're not to use our words to tear down. We're to use our words to build up salt and light. We're different. Ephesians 4, 29 and 30. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We do not use our words for contempt as the people of Christ. And Jesus says, those who are angered, they'll be subject to judgment. He says, to the hell of fire. Jesus taught a lot about hell. We're gonna see that a lot in this sermon. Final judgment is real. And Jesus is warning us here. This word for who is angry, the one who is angry, it's a present participle. Of course, Jesus is not saying that anyone who's ever been angry is going to hell or anyone who's ever used these words will be judged. What he's doing is he's talking about types of people. Are you staying angry? Are you carrying anger, present tense? Are you nursing hatred? Remember the difference between saved people and unsaved people, it's not the presence or absence of sin, but it's our posture toward it. As Christians, as people of the kingdom, we hate it and we fight it. We war against it. We're not comfortable with it. And of course, anger is not always sinful. Ephesians 4 says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. There is a, a, such a thing as anger that's not sinful. There's an old English proverb that says, he's a fool who cannot get angry, but he is wise who will not remain so. There is such a thing as holy hatred. It's righteous anger, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew chapter 5. The community of Jesus is one that puts anger to death and pursues peace. So how can we make some progress? I want to get real practical in this sermon, and I have a lot of lists for you this morning. I'll put them on our Facebook page, our church Facebook page today or tomorrow, so don't fret if you don't get them all. But I want us to get really practical and consider a battle plan against anger. How can we make progress in this area? Notice the seriousness of it here. This is war. We need to go to war with sins such as anger. So when, you, when it begins to come on, whatever it is, when you're triggered, when you feel that blood pressure rising, what are some things you can do to not become angry? Well, number one, realize that you're a spirit-indwelt Christian. In other words, you can overcome anger. You're not a victim. You are to exercise self-control over the sin, and you can if you're a Christian. So that's the first place is to be optimistic. You can't Two, just stop and pray. Just, just take a deep breath, orient yourself, zoom out a little bit, take a, take a moment, push pause, slow your roll, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, James 1.19. This is so important. Slow to speak. Proverbs 29, 20. Do you see a man who's hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. 
So there it is. It's hit. Just stop for a moment. Acknowledge. And that's really, that's really helpful, actually. You know what? I'm angry right now. Before you say or do anything. And then pray and ask, God, where, where is my thinking off? What, what does God want in this moment? And so, for example, hypothetically, <laughs> if one of my children sins against another children or maybe against me or against my wife, the sinful response is anger and correction. Bark at them, whatever it may be. What needs to happen? Well, I need to stop. Take a breath. Okay. This child is in sin. And what's my role in it? Should I be mad at the sin? No, I should be sad about the sin, right? Because I'm a sinner as well. I should be broken. Oh, you know what? They're ensnared by sin again. I've been there too, all too often. If I stop right then and there, all of a sudden my posture's changed. And then I remind myself, you know what? God has gift. This child is a gift from the Lord. And God has graciously put me here as an agent of rescue. And God has called me in particular, Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, not to provoke them, but to bring them up in the, the instruction, the discipline of the Lord. I'm called to disciple them. And so now how will I, this is all of a sudden an opportunity. This just, just, just in, in three seconds, I grab perspective and all of a sudden now we've got an opportunity for ministry. All of a sudden now we've got a gospel opportunity. Here I am, I get to care for this little human who's ensnared by sin yet again, just like me. And so I have a good word. I have a gospel. Yes, correction needs to happen. But they need the Lord just like I need the Lord. And what do you know? Here I am. I'm being fathered by my father. I seek to father little children. And so after orienting myself, taking a deep breath, pushing pause, getting perspective, I'm going to get my anger under control. It's a game changer. Just push pause. Now, let me just be quick to confess. It doesn't go down like that nearly enough. But that's the second thing. Just stop and pray. Third thing. This is how we're going to make progress. Well, you're going to sin. You're probably going to sin this week. How, will you, how can you respond? Well, interrogate the sin that you might overcome and ask, you know, when do I tend to get angry? When does it happen? Is there a certain place? Is there a pattern of anger? Is there a certain day? A certain time of day? Is there something some that tends to provoke me? Number four. Identify the idol. We're doing heart work now. Idolatry really is the sin behind every sin. See, anger is a tip-off. There's been some wrong thought about something, some wrong thought process, some wrong value, some wrong evaluation, something elevated too much, something it's called worshipped. So a really helpful question is, in the midst of anger, what is it that you want? Okay, I'm anger, I'm angry. What do I want? See, psychiatrists even get this. They call emotion a secondary, I mean, excuse me, they call anger a, a secondary emotion. You're angry because you did not get something you wanted. And then you respond sinfully because of your lowercase g, 
God didn't come through or was taken away or disappointed you? What was it? Identify what was it that you wanted at that moment? Was it maybe a clean house? Did you want sinless children? Did you want that job promotion? Did you want that highway all to yourself? Did you want a clean bill of health? Did you want to be loved? Did you want to be respected? Did you want to have no interruptions in your daily schedule? Did you want to be pain free? Did you want to have more income? Did you want to be married? Did you want success and acknowledgments? Did you want a weed eater whose strings never need refilling? <laughs> or any number of things. Ask it, what's the idol? What did I want? You desire something and it doesn't happen, so you respond in anger. Anger is the smoke that rises from the idol on the altar of your hearts. Listen to James chapter four, verse one. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and coral. You do not have because you do not ask. What causes fights? You know, we could, re, we could reword this. What causes anger? Your desires. In other words, your wants. You want, but you don't get. And you respond in anger. Here's how Paul Tripp puts it. Desire lies at the base of every angry feeling, word, and action. And so identify the idol. That's where you got to fight the sin, right? You got to go for the root. Can't just trim off the weeds. What is your wanting and deal with the sin at that level? The primary issue, not the secondary emotion of anger. Fifth step in the battle plan is you've identified it. Now you put it off and you put something on in its replacement. Ephesians chapter four, verse 22. We've been taught to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. There it is. What a plan. This is the pathway of life. This is repentance. Here it comes. You put it off. You put off anger. You renew the spirit of your mind. You take a moment. You call the truth of God to mind and you put on its replacement. You put off unrighteousness, you put on righteousness. You put off anger and you put on love and humility and patience and gentleness. We stop worshiping idols and we worship the one true God. Sixth step. This is really the renewal of the mind. It's preached to yourself. It's memorize scripture, know the Bible. And fight sin with the word of God. Didn't we see that in Matthew chapter 4? That's what Jesus does three times. He's tempted by the devil. What does he do? He quotes the Bible. And so find verses on anger and put them in your heart. Renew your minds and then put on. We renew the mind through the word of God. And so memorize this passage, Matthew chapter 5. Or memorize Colossians 3.8. It says this. 
But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath. Put it away. Malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Or Proverbs 16, 32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Proverbs 29, 11, a fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise person has self-control. Preach to yourself. And then seventh, repent when you fail. Not if you fail, when you fail. And flee to Christ. Run from sin to the cross. Remember how this sermon started. Look at chapter 5, verse 3. Those who are blessed, happy, flourishing are the poor in spirit. Verse 4, it's those who mourn and they mourn over their sin. We will battle sin until the resurrection of the dead. Again, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not the presence or absence of sin. It's what you do with it. And so we're quick to repent, take care of our sin soon before the sun goes down, confess and ask for forgiveness from the person and from God, and then interrogate it again. How did I sin? How could I do it differently next time? What did I want? What was I worshiping? And then resolve to pursue holiness and by grace, do better, and then be on guard as you move forward. So rather than being angry people, we're to be a peacemaking people. And now Jesus then gives us here in chapter 5 a couple parables about peacemaking. Let's consider then second the priority of peace. Look at chapter 5, verse 23. Jesus says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift I mean what a striking verse isn't it corporate worship ought to be prioritized we believe that here it's all throughout the bible absolutely but Jesus says here if you're at the temple you're at corporate worship and there you remember you have some unresolved conflicts with a fellow Christian, you're to drop everything and go make it right. Conflict resolution in the community of Christ takes priority over corporate worship according to the Lord. And of course, the only temple that had an altar was in Jerusalem, which would have been 80 miles from Galilee. It would have taken a week. Go pursue reconciliation. Jesus gives three imperatives. Leave your gift, go be reconciled and once you have reconciled then return to worship notice he says when someone has something against you God wants us to take initiative unity in the church is so important our king wants us unified around him in John 17 Jesus prays that we would be one just like the father and the son are one and even says that the world will know that the Father sent the Son by our unity in the church. Isn't that incredible? And why is unity so important? Unity in the church. Why is that so important to God? Well, what's God's grand goal? What's God's main purpose in the world? You ever think about that question? There's a lot of right answers. If he said for the glory of God, that's, that's probably at base the most fundamental answer. But he actually tells us in the book of Ephesians, what is God up to? Let me read Ephesians 1, 8. It says, 
with all wisdom and insight, God has now, verse 9, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, here it is, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What's God up to? What's his will? What's his plan? What's his purpose? It's to unite everything in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. If you know the book of Ephesians, he then talks about how he's reconciled individuals to Christ. Then he talks about how corporately, Ephesians 2, 11 and following, two people that were recently at odds, previously hostile, now have been made one through Christ. The two become one. What's he doing? He's starting with a people. God eventually will unite everything under Christ, but what does he do first? Before he does that to the whole world, he does it through a people that are united in Christ. And that's his main plan and purpose in this age is a unified people. In fact, that's how he shows off his wisdom. Let me flip a page to chapter 3 of Ephesians. Look at verse 7. I'm going to read a couple verses, but the point's down below. Of this gospel, Paul says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Here it is. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Peace and unity in the church is one of his main things. He's uniting us all. We all have all kinds of different backgrounds, but we come together in a common confession that Jesus Christ is king. And it's through that unity that God's showing his wisdom to the principalities and powers. God's flexing his muscles to the powers through a unified church around him. That's why Jesus taught about it so much. We already saw that, right? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Who are the blessed ones? The peacemakers. Look at the second parable in Matthew chapter 5, verse 25. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. So Jesus paints another picture really with the same points. Come to terms quickly. Keep short accounts. Make things right even before you get to the judge. If you wait till then, it may not go well for you. He's telling us another story to drive home the point about pursuing peace and keeping right relations with one another. And he says we're to do it quickly. Just like he said a while ago about worship. First. Go make it right, be reconciled, then worship. Right relationships in the church demand decisive action. Let me just say, we don't do this well as a church in America. Let's let Southside be salt and light by doing this well. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. We prioritize peace. 
I've mentioned the, the four G's of peacemaking for it's been a little while I need to probably be talking about it more because I want it in your vocabulary but more importantly I want it in your in your life in your heart this is from a book uh, by, called the peacemaker by Ken Sandy and he's got a lot of other books really helpful stuff let's walk through these how then if we're, there's a conflict how can we do this well four G's glorify God get the log out of your own eye gently restore and go and be reconciled First, conflict comes, anger, you're triggered. What do you do? First, glorify God. Realize, okay, here it is. Do we believe God's sovereign in this church? Something happens. Here it is. God sent that to you, Romans 8, 29, to conform your character. All of a sudden, now I have an opportunity Conflict just knocked at my door, and here I am with another opportunity to serve somebody and honor the Lord. Conflict is always an opportunity. You know, though, when something happens, and again, we get triggered, our blood pressure rises, isn't God usually the furthest thing from our mind? For us, when it comes to conflict, just, just think of how much would be handled better and resolved well if our first thought was, how can I honor God in this conflict? I'm in this conflict and rather than be right or prove them wrong or belittle them, call them names or whatever, no, I'm gonna honor God. Before things get hot, where's God in this? What does he want? It's the hardest step, but in so many ways, the most important. You get this right, everything else is gonna follow. Let me just footnote, though, a fifth. This is not Ken Sandy. Let me footnote a fifth G, and that is get over it. Sometimes, I mean, we're all sinners. Constantly, sometimes we just need to let things go. Let the small stuff go. And you know what? Most of life is the small stuff. So just let it go. You ever, you ever sit with a married couple, and they're just like constantly correcting one another about the most petty things? So yeah, we went over there in the afternoon. Well, you know, actually it was the morning when we went over there. Sheesh. Love covers a multitude of sins. So we don't have to engage everything. Love covers all the petty stuff. So first, glorify God. Second, get the log out of your own eye. Jesus actually teaches this. Flip over a page to Matthew chapter 7. Probably the most quoted passage in our day it used to be John 3, 16, now it's Matthew 7, 1. The problem is it's misquoted because if we read the context, Jesus is actually commanding us to judge. We just have to take a step first. So look at Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Notice what he's saying there. He's not saying never judge, never correct, never confront. He's just saying make sure you judge and correct and confront yourself first. Take the log out of your own and then you can see the speck. Examine yourself first before you go to correct and confront. First we see where we have sinned. 
Again, which is the opposite of our natural fallen tendency, isn't it? Our natural fallen tendency is to prove ourselves right. The call of Jesus, though, is actually show where you're wrong. Our tendency is to maximize their fault and minimize ours. Instead, we ought to ask, how am I part of the problem? How have I contributed to this issue? Maybe, maybe you're only responsible for 2% of the problem. Jesus would say, you are 100% responsible for your 2%. So own your part. Get the log out of your own eye. Take responsibility. Confess. In our home, that means that we, we state the offense and then we ask for a transaction. So whatever sin it is, and then we got seven sinners under our roof. We do this a lot. It's the culture of our home. We confess with specificity the offense. I am sorry for fill in the blank. Will you forgive me? There's no just, I'm sorry. So we, don't, we don't put up with that in our house. Sorry. No, 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 no. That's not how we do biblical confession here. We don't want to ever say, I'm sorry that you, uh-uh. Sorry that you felt that way, uh-uh. What's that doing? That's putting it on them, isn't it? No, no, no. We're owning our part first. I am sorry that I fill in the blank. Will you forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. Ken Sandy also has the, the seven A's of a good confession. Let me run through these. Number one, when, you, when you're in sin, confess and address everyone involved. Starting with God, but your confession should reach as far as your offense. Number two, in your confession, again, the words matter. So avoid words like if or but or maybe. Just own it. We're sinners saved by grace. We don't have to prove our rightness. The cross already shown our wrongness. Number three, admit specifically. And if you can, use biblical language to confess your sin. I'm sorry I got frustrated when you did this. No, 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 no. I confess I was angry. Will you forgive me? Number four, acknowledge the hurts. Number five, sometimes there's consequences. And part of biblical confession is we accept those consequences. Number six, alter your behavior. Change. This is the heart of repentance, right? It's not worldly sorrow. It's godly sorrow that leads to change. And seven, ask for forgiveness. And allow time. Sometimes it takes some time. All right, this second G, get the log out. Third G, gently restore. Again, one of the things that we're different here is that we don't run away from conflict. We don't run to the other church. We don't run and talk behind people's back. No, we lean into it. But when we do, we confront and correct with gentleness. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, I love that language, caught in it, we've been there. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But as you do, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. We gently restore. Jesus taught quite a bit on this. I want you to look over at Matthew chapter 18. Famously known for church discipline, which it is that, but it's actually a whole lot more than that. It's about conflict resolution. He gives us a path. He gives us a plan. Matthew 18 verse 15. 
if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. There it is. We gently restore. We don't run away. We lean into it. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, an unbeliever. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Jesus is saying, as you come together as a church and say this, you're basically making the declaration on behalf of heaven. But the point is, notice how he tells us to lean in. We pursue. We don't escape. We don't attack. This is where we understand what biblical love is in a way that the world does not. Listen to this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Nothing is so cruel as the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. So countercultural. Because our world today would say, well, loving is just let them go. Don't say a word. Consign them to their sin. But actually, biblical love and biblical compassion might include a severe rebuke if the motive is to gain them back. Nothing is so cruel as the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. That's third, gently restore. Fourth G, go and be reconciled. It's right here from our passage in Matthew chapter 5, verse 24. Leave your gift and go and pursue reconciliation. Confess and forgive and make things right. Ken Sandy lays out four promises of forgiveness. What is biblical for forgiveness? Really important here. Number one. Four promises of forgiveness. Number one, I promise I won't dwell on this incident. Number two, I promise I won't bring up this incident and use it against you. You have a relationship and you bring up the past, something that's been resolved, something that's been reconciled, and you have a trump card and you bring it out, you haven't practiced biblical for forgiveness. Forgiveness promises not to bring it up and use it against you. Whatever offense that is, is nailed to the cross on Golgotha. Leave it there. Number three, I promise I won't talk to others about this incident. And number four, I promise I won't allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. If you haven't done those four things, you haven't forgiven. How do we get there? Meditate and dwell on the cross of Christ. See, forgiven people are forgiving people. 
To withhold forgiveness is to show you haven't been forgiven. That's not my word, that's Jesus. Flip the page of Matthew chapter 6. The Lord's Prayer, verse 12. We pray and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then look at verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is no small thing, according to our Lord. So when we're in a conflict, we glorify God, we get the log out, we gently restore, and we go and be reconciled. In church, the gospel is the fuel for all of this. Because we've been given grace, we extend grace. Because we've been shown mercy, we're a merciful people. As God has been to us, we will be to one another. And so let's beware the danger of anger and let's prioritize the pursuit of peace. Let's pray together. God, if we've had ears to hear, we should be undone this morning. So I pray for those of us who feel the conviction of your spirit that we would remind ourselves of the gospel and remind ourselves of where this teaching is headed and it's headed to a cross where we find forgiveness for falling short. What a glorious truth. What a glorious gospel. May it produce in us, in our own life, in our homes, and in this church, a culture of grace, a culture of gospel, a culture where it's just the norm that we confess and we forgive. We confess and we forgive. We confess and we forgive. And we show the world what it means to be a people who mourn over sin to be people who are poor in spirit. And at the same time, God, I pray for those of us who know you that you would give us grace, that we would make progress. Help us to do better. We want to put to death anger and we want to put on humility and love and peace. And so help us. We want to, we need your help. And so I pray that for all of us. God, would we be those who fight this sin with all that we have and would you give grace to help us to do better? to be sanctified over time, progressively. God, may we uh, do conflict resolution well. May this church not be a place where we just get a, get a toe stepped on or get our feelings hurt and shoot the deuces and bell. No, may we be those who lean into conflict resolution and may we honor you as we do so. Help us to be unified around Christ. We pray it in his name, amen.